We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. And that's found uh, in your pew Bibles on page 4 of the New Testament section of the Bible. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you may have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the, the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into the inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do, not be, so do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then and say, Our Father, who, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom of for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men and the men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Well, let's keep that uh, passage of God's word open. And uh, let's pray for God's help as we study it together now. Our gracious Father, we praise you for the privilege of gathering as your people, and we ask you to help us to understand your word, that our hearts may be changed, that we might glorify your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So it's estimated that there are around 70 to 200 million dollars worth of counterfeit bills circulating in the United States today. And therefore learning how to spot a fake is critically important. How could you ever tell? The US Treasury has come up with some important advice. First, feel the texture of the notes or the bill because those who handle it over time will get used 
to the difference in feel between the real and the fake. Then look carefully at the printing quality. Real treasury bills have a printing technique that uses offset printing and digital printing. Look for any blurry areas on the bill. Are fine details around borders blurry or crisp? Remember that on every US bill, there are tiny red and blue fibers embedded in the paper. Can you see them or not? Examine the serial numbers. Fake bills have serial numbers, but they're not evenly spaced or not perfectly in a row. Then check the watermark. Is it the correct uh, volume for the portrait? Use a magnifying glass. Look at the microprinting, and then run your fingernail over the portrait to see if there are distinctive ridges or not. And the point is that for those who know what they're looking for, identifying the fake as opposed to the real is easy. And it is into the world of the counterfeit Christian versus the real Christian that Jesus is taking us today as we turn back to Matthew 6, verses 1 to 18. The preacher is Jesus. His subject is the kingdom of heaven. And he's teaching every disciple on the nature of true, authentic Christianity versus the fake. Already, uh, that's something that Jesus has taught us in our sermon series from the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen that the mark of true Christianity is to be broken at our guilt, to be mourning our sin, and to be hungering for a righteousness we do not possess. And we've seen that this is the mark of true Christianity because the work of the law is to expose our guilt. As we say, we cannot attain perfection before God, and so we're driven to the cross of Christ. Well, this morning as we continue the sermon from Jesus the preacher, he continues his expose of fake religion as now he turns to the area of piety. And the contrast is going to be between the formal versus the real. Between the inwards versus the outwards. And he begins in verse 1 with a serious warning to us all. As he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. It's a warning and it's stark. Be careful, says Jesus. These are the same words you might find on the clifftop where the sign warns you of the steep drop if you go too far. Be careful. The same words you might find on the beach that has a strong riptide as you go out to swim where there are no lifeguards. Be careful. The same warning you might find on the packet of cigarettes from the Surgeon General. Be careful. There's a risk of death. A risk, says Jesus, that we might take good acts of service before God and bend the vertical axis down so that actually we end up just performing on the horizontal axis. Be careful, 
says Jesus. And let me just say that there is nobody being warned more this morning than those who, in a sense, do quotes um, perform up front. So that's the preacher, isn't it? And the clergy and the music groups. In a sense, there's a very real danger that we might fall into this trap. It's a trap uh, for us all. And having given us the warning in verse 1, what Jesus does in verse 2 to 18 is then to give us three areas of illustration, three case studies. As he takes the three disciplines from the ancient world of Judaism, which actually happen to be the three great disciplines of Christianity and form part of the five pillars of Islam, at the heart of every religion, we're going to find giving and praying and fasting. As he now cashes out the warning of verse 1 into these three important areas. Our first, and it's on our sheets if we're making notes, verses 1 to 6, is giving. Jesus says, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets that they may be honored by men. But truly, I say, they have received their reward in full. Now, that word hypocrite, verse 2, literally translates from the original Greek into the word actor or stage player. And in the Greek, uh, the word is what's called a compound noun made of two words that literally translate an interpreter from underneath. And it only really makes sense when you discover that in the Greco-Roman world, the way the actor would perform would be by holding a mask to his face. So the mask would project the, the role, and then the actor would interpret from underneath the mask. And that phrase, the interpreter from underneath, the actor, uh, was then used increasingly in English and French literature uh, of somebody who used a mask to pretend to be, morally speaking, somebody they actually weren't, thus deceiving them. But the point is, we are in Hollywoods, or somewhere in Broadway. We're in the world of Tom Hanks and Helen Mirren, because what they do is to learn the lines, don the costume, and play the parts. These hypocrites, says Jesus, they're mask wearers, actors. They come to church to pretend to be someone, when in reality, Monday to Saturday, they're somebody completely different. And the scene, as Jesus paints it, is borrowed from the comedy section. So they arrive at church in order to give money. But what they long for is to be seen as they virtue signal in front of everybody else. They give, says Jesus, to a trumpet fanfare. It's difficult to know what this sounding of the trumpet actually means. Uh, it's possible that Jesus is talking about the feast times in the ancient world, which were signaled by the blasting of a trumpet. Or is it that he's talking about a receptacle at the back of church, the synagogue, a, a brass receptacle, a bit like a, I suppose, like a, a French horn. Um, and actually what they're doing is they're, they're throwing their gold coins 
into the brass horn receptacle, and then it pings and clatters down into the receptacle, and the noise ricochets, because the acoustics are amazing, right across the synagogue. Wow! Did you hear that? What? That noise. Who was that? Oh, that's Jacob Zechariah walking in. Wow! Did you hear how many gold coins he threw into the offering at the back of the synagogue just now? Yes. Was it one? No, I think it was five. Did you hear the ricochet and the echo? Yes. He's so generous. What an amazing Christian. But the point is, it's not really an act of sacrificial generosity at all, but of ostentatious virtue signaling. He donates in the hope that he's noticed. So he's not serving the glory of God, but his own reputation. He's not interested in the glory of God, but in being seen. He's not giving, but investing in his own image, in his own virtue. His motive is to be noticed by everybody else. And occasionally you sometimes see big uh, banks, Bank of America or Univest, donating to charity. And normally, it's the same overseas, they, they hand the big check and then they hand it half over and then they're receiving it. And I don't know, the local mayor is there from the city and all the people from the hospice or the hospital and the photographers are there. It's a very crass picture, isn't it, of giving to be seen but the same spirit lives, if we're honest, inside all of us. Because we're all tempted to perform to the gallery, to look good in front of others, as we treat church as a kind of spiritual beauty pageant, not so much a, a Miss World, but a Miss Righteous, as we vie with each other to virtue signal our own superior righteousness. And Jesus has a warning. If that's what we're here to do this morning, if that's why we're in church, to be seen by others and noticed by the gallery, then we've received our reward in full. Because God doesn't award Oscars for the best performing parts. He looks at the heart. And that phrase, they've received their reward in full, is a phrase in the Greek borrowed from the world of commerce or business or shopping. It literally means they've received full payments, or if you like, they've been handed their receipts. I came to church to make sure you all noticed me. You have. You've patted me on the back. So I've been handed the receipts. I've been given payments in full, but there is no reward left from God. Jesus then is teaching that we need to form part of the secret service. We need to ensure that our giving is discreet and unseen and invisible. Invisible even to ourselves, he says. 
Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We use that phrase, actually, of incompetence. Oh, the thing about the IRS is the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. I was on the phone. Actually, this did happen to me the other week. Um, department A told me that Department D was dealing with it, but C was confused about Department E, and the left hand just didn't know what the right hand was doing an hour and a half into the call. But here, it's not incompetence, but discretion and secrecy of giving. Spurgeon puts it like this, keep the thing so secret that even you yourself are hardly aware that you're doing anything at all praiseworthy. Let God be present and you will have enough of an audience. So as the left hand gives, let not the right hand be patting myself on my back. That's the point. For lying behind this command is the doctrine of God, that the Father is ever-present, ever-watching, all-loving, all-seeing. He sees in secret and He knows, and He is God over us. There's a children's song that gets it right. It says this, there's a Father up above who's looking down in love, an all-seeing, all-knowing God who cares for us and watches. And if you look at the uh, text, uh, you, you'll notice that all the way through chapter 6, there is a little verse in italics. Did you notice that as Bob was reading it uh, to us? Verse 4, um, your father who sees what is done in secret in italics, and then down in verse 6, what is done in secrets. And then it's there, I think, over in verse uh, 18, what is done. That's not part of the original because the original is a play on words, which is to say that the unseen father sees in secret. The unseen father sees what isn't seen. <laughs> it's a great play on words that the unseen father, unseen to us, sees the secrets. And this is a great uh, challenge to whether we believe that the all-seeing Father is always with us, always present, that the Father up above looks down in love. Do you believe that the unseen Father sees in secrets? Because if we do, it is a great motivation to generous and discreet generosity. All of this actually takes us to a discussion that um, consistory and spiritual counsel have been having over the last few months. And we discussed it just a few weeks ago in October as we thought about the whole issue of giving and asked the question if this is how we're commanded to give, whether or not that's reflected in our life as a church. Because all of the time, what Jesus commands must be brought to bear in how we behave as a church family, or we are those who just push it aside. And the question was asked, how can we give sacrificially and secretly when actually our practice is to pass around the offering plates? And we had a discussion about this, as I say, in October, and we came to the realization that it's very difficult to give discreetly and secretly 
when actually there's a plate that's being passed around and we're watching everyone putting money into the plates. And therefore, a decision was made in October. It was unanimous, and we made the decision that from now on going forward, uh, what we're going to do is start phasing in a new way of giving, not the offering plate, but actually reverting to what we did under COVID, which was to take our envelopes and then put them in at the back in the pillars uh, by the door. I should say that we're going to keep running the plate for now, so we want to make sure it's done really well and clearly. But in the next week or so, Dana and Jeff and others will get up and explain that we're moving uh, from the offering plates to a new way of giving that is more discreet. The envelopes that we value, we'll put them in the pillars at the back. And for those who would prefer to do it in an even more discreet and secret way, Dana will be coming up to talk about how to give online. So we can do that through our bank uh, orders. Actually, there's a side benefit that the ushers, who are always outside with the offering plate, they can be part of the service and concentrate on our welcome and welcome of newcomers. But let me just say that we'll be working on that in the next few weeks, not next week, but at some point in the next few weeks, um, we'll, we'll, we'll gently move uh, to this because we believe it's reflective of what Jesus teaches here. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But there is an extraordinary promise, don't miss it, that every time we give secretly and sacrificially to the work of the kingdom, God sees, God loves your generosity, and He will reward you. So there's our first point. It's in the area of giving. And then in verse 7, Jesus moves to a second area, the area, verse 7 to 15, of praying. The story is told of a Ivy League student, a college kid. I don't know whether he was at Yale or Oxford, but in the particular college he went to, there was a tradition that at formal dinners, they would always say grace in Latin. Well, everybody arrived into the college hall, uh, but the problem was the classic scholar wasn't present that day. And by mistake, this engineering kid from a public school, he didn't know any Latin, he ended up sitting in the classics uh, students' seats. The uh, master of the college tapped on the table, and then all eyes looked at the seat of the Latin student who wasn't there and saw this engineering kid from a public school who didn't know any Latin standing there. But he was a quick thinker. He didn't know any Latin. So what he decided to do was to reel off as quickly as possible the names of the first four washing up liquids he could think of. And this is how it went. Surf, Ariel, Deft, Persil, Amen. Whereupon everybody thinking that was amazing Latin said, Amen. And the meal continued as normal. The temptation to show off, though, in prayer is there for every single one of us, isn't it? And the Pharisees were very self-conscious about this. The word Pharisee comes from the word separated out. So we were separate out from you. We're different to you, better than you. We are the separated out ones. 
And therefore, they showed off their virtue in the area of giving and now in the area of prayer. Look at verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say, they have received their reward in full. These hypocrites love to pray. So far, so good. But they love to pray to be seen by men, not God. Almost like a little child. Look at me. And Jesus critiques both where they choose to pray and then how they choose to pray. So, where they choose to pray, on the street corners. I was in London some months ago, and I needed a cab late at night. Couldn't find one, so I, I decided to stand on the street corner. The great thing about the street corner is you get double the traffic, and I caught my cab. But they stand on the street corners, the busy intersections, probably as people were heading to the hour of prayer. And then they stood there and prayed and showed their virtue as people both ways went past. So they prayed out and about, but also in the synagogues, up on the chancel steps, because there we can be seen in the service itself. They timed their movements to be in the most public place at the most busy of times for maximum attention. But how did they pray? Through thoughtless repetition, Jesus says, as the Gentiles do, thinking that they would be heard because of their many words. And in Jesus' day, there was a rabbi called Rabbi Levi. He said this, quote, whoever is long in prayer is heard by God. Another rabbi taught, whenever the righteous make their prayer long, their prayer is heard. So, one famous Jewish, Jewish prayer began like this, uh, blessed, praised, glorified, exalted, honored, unrivaled, oh God are you, and on and on the prayer went, thoughtless repetitions. The Greek word Jesus uses is literally babbling, because as the prayer went on and on and on, it was like a form of babbling. Blah, 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 blah. That was the sense of it. Which is probably a reference to 1 Kings 18, verse 26, where the prophet ended up on the mountain with the false prophets of the Baals. And you remember how they danced around on the mountain for half a day around the altar, crying out to the gods, crying out to Baal, morning to noon, Blah, 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 trying to get the God's attention. Where is he? Is he, is he, is he, is he gone to the restroom? Is he, is he gone on vacation? As they tried to impress him through babbling on. And Jesus says, and it's a great relief to us, when you pray, you don't need to use vain repetitions or incantations. You don't need a seminary degree from Westminster. You don't need to address God in amazing Shakespearean English or Latin. Because the basis on which he hears you is not the length of the prayer or the location of the prayer or the form of the prayer. It's not your eloquence, but his grace. 
He listens to you not because of your performance, but because he loves you. And therefore, true prayer is not an articulation of the mouth, but an attitude of the heart. So Jesus corrects us as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Houses in Jesus' day were really made of mud. Uh, they were very easy to break into, and they were just one room, very small. And actually what they did at the center of the houses was to have a tiny little room. It was the storeroom. They would actually keep their treasure in there. It had no windows. It was like a keep uh, in the center of the house, a very small room with no windows but just a little door. And so Jesus says, when you pray, go into that room. Uh, that's the room that he's referring to here, the particular wording. Go into the storeroom, the cupboard, the closets. Go into the room with no windows. And in the secrecy of that space, where nobody can see you, the unseen Father sees and hears, and he will reward you. Jesus is not here, by the way, saying it's wrong for Pastor Steve to lead us in prayer. He's not condemning public prayer. Indeed, Jesus prays in public. But he is questioning the motivation of our heart. When we pray in front of others, is it that we want to be seen horizontally and applauded, or is it that the prayer is directed towards God? But it's a great liberation, isn't it? We don't need to babble on and on, blah, 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 300 Hail Marys, 200 Our Fathers. Because what is prayer? It's very simple. Prayer is asking God. And how do we ask God? With simple, brief, concise requests. Just the other day, one of the kids was hungry. Daddy, quote, can I have toast? I ignored the first request. Daddy came the second request. Can I have toast? I was still busy. Third request. Daddy, can I have toast? Fourth request. Daddy, can I have toast? Very simple, very brief. Persisted. Fifth time. Daddy, can I have toast? It wasn't flowery, sophisticated, elaborate, liturgical, or lengthy. Sixth request. Daddy, can I have toast? Bold, concise, persistent. Six times I eventually gave in not because of my virtue, but because I was exhausted by the request. Daddy can have toast. And he got what he came shopping for that day. Because in verse 9, the key word, as Jesus teaches us to pray, is that word, Father. We haven't got time to look at the Lord's Prayer today, but here's a promise. We'll actually do a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer in January. How about that? And we'll go through each line, which will be really interesting. But for now, verse 9, notice that the key word in our approach to God in prayer is Father. And actually, Jesus does not use the formal word paternoster. He uses the intimate words Abba, which really means dad or daddy, if you're from the UK. Um, because the basis of the approach is not me but the fatherhoods and grace of God's. The Muslim has 98 different names for God's. 
Not one of them is father. But the basis on which we approach God, in the words of the book, is we dare to call him father. We are his adopted children and he loves us. And therefore, at the very heart of the Christian life is a confidence and a security. Here's a little um, trailer for January then. Actually, Jesus commands us to pray for three things, and they are part of the universal provision of God. What is it we are to pray for while we're on it? Uh, His provision, His pardon, and His protection. Verse 11, His provision, our daily breads. Verse 12, His pardon, forgive us our debts. And His protection, Verse 13, we'll think about this in January in that sermon series, but Martin Luther puts it like this, faith quickly gets through telling what it wants. Many long prayers are not the way. Prayers should be brief, frequent, and intense. Daddy, I want toast. Daddy, I want toast. Martin Luther, brief, you don't need to pray for five hours a day. Frequent, daddy, I want toast. Intense. Daddy, I want toast. The third area then, and lastly, is the area of fasting, verses 16 to 18. Interestingly, this forms one of the five pillars of Islam and one of the three pillars of Judaism still today. In the Old Testament, fasting was only mandated once a year on the annual Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur. But the Pharisees took it further as they fasted twice a week. In the Old Testament, fasting was supposed to be a sign of deep contrition for guilt and penance. So Daniel fasted as he made that great confessional penitential prayer for the nation. Saul of Tarsus converted to Paul. He fasted for three days. He was without sight and neither ate nor drank But the Pharisees subverted and perverted fasting from an act of contrition to a performance of conceit. So, when they were fasting, this is what happened, and we're back in the comedy section as they walk into church like Eeyore, faces like a funeral, looking drained and exhausted and sick to try and catch the attention of the congregation. They look somber, says Jesus. They, they put on a gloomy face. And the original is very striking. Literally, they blackened their face. Because the ancient practice, when you wanted to not draw attention to yourself when you were fasting, was to paint your face black so that people wouldn't notice the pain you were in. But here's the perversity of the human heart. They don't blacken out their face not to be seen. Actually, what they're doing is they're blackening out their face and making it look black and gloomy in order to be seen. Oh, the conversation probably went as they limped into church. Are you all right? You look exhausted. Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, Well, well, you're walking a little bit funny. Are are you really well? Should you be here? Don't worry. I'm, I'm fasting. You're fasting? 
Yes, yes, to the Lord. Well, how long have you been fasting for? Ah, two, three, four days. Oh, you look so sick. Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. I'm just going to have to continue the fast for two more days. Wow. It's comedy, isn't it? Only it's actually tragedy. Because these guys are phonies. They're fakes and counterfeits. Their sole objective is to draw attention to themselves and to gain the applause of the gallery as people say, wow, so pious, so Christian. In fact, I've been thinking about this with some colleagues here in the US and back in the UK, trying to work through why so many of the mainline denominations have completely collapsed into progressive woke. It's terrifying, actually, as you do your analysis. And a friend of mine is writing a paper on this at the moment. And why is it that so many denominations, the Methodists and the Episcopalians, some of the, the Baptist denominations and the Lutherans, why is it that they're all collapsing into the zeitgeist? And isn't it this? that actually all along their fundamental axis wasn't vertical at all. It was always just a religion fit for the culture of their day. And now as the culture shifts, so they must shift too into a new ideology. This is a real warning then, isn't it? If we exist in our churchmanship and faith fundamentally to be seen and noticed, and that's why we're here, it's not a faith that's going to withstand persecution at all. J.C. Ryle puts it like this. May we all remember these things. Here then lies a rock on which many are continually making shipwrecks spiritually. They flatter themselves that all must be right with their souls if only they perform a certain amount of religious duty. But they forget that God does not regard the quantity but the quality of our service. His favor is not to be bought, as many may seem to suppose, by the formal repetition of a number of words or the self-righteous payment of a sum of money to a charitable institution. Where are our hearts? Are we doing all, whether we give or pray, as to the Lord or to men? I studied French at school, and uh, we did a play. Uh, it's a well-known play called Le Tartuffe. It was written by Molière and first performed in 1664. And the title in French, Tartuffe, uh, was a word that really means imposter or hypocrites. This man is a religious priest, and he smuggles himself into this aristocratic house in order to pray for them and be a priest and a priestly presence in the house. But soon it becomes clear what his ulterior motives really are as he seeks to seduce the wife. Tartuffe is regarded well by the public, but actually he is a complete fraud. 
And when Molière published the play and first performed it in 1664, so terrifying an expose of hypocrisy was it that the Roman Catholic Church tried to suppress it, as did the aristocrats of France. If actually people began to think that there are many in the church like this, perhaps there would be a crisis in the church, nationally speaking. And had it not been for the fact that Louis XIV enjoyed the play, it wouldn't have been published, and Moliere uh, would have been excommunicated. It was an expose, a disturbing expose of religious hypocrisy at the heart of the church. But here's the truth. The truth, if we're honest, is that to some extent or other, we are all Tartuffe, because all of us are guilty of religious hypocrisy. And maybe as we've gone through the areas of giving and praying and fasting, you've thought to yourself, rightly, I'm guilty of hypocrisy here, here, and here. And therefore, as we finish, we need to remember and marvel that the Jesus who teaches the Sermon on the Mounts, demanding this perfection, is the same Jesus who will end his ministry on the cross of Calvary. And as he died on the cross, he bore the judgment we deserve. He paid in full for your religious hypocrisy. The temptation to put on our Sunday best and be something on a Sunday which we know we're not at home and work Monday through Saturday. The great good news of the cross is Jesus has shed his blood for hypocrites like me. My sin, oh, the bliss, what was it that the choir just sung? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in full, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And as we marvel at Jesus' saving death at Calvary, we are energized as our hearts are changed, as the Spirit of Jesus now motivates us towards a Father who loves us. He loves me so much. Now, I want to make sure that I'm giving and fasting and praying, not to impress, because the great news of grace is we don't need to impress. In secret, we can be honest with the God who loves us. The U.S. Treasury knows how to identify the fraudulence from the real. Do we? And let's make sure this week that we live by the Spirit's enabling, genuine faith that pleases God. Shall we pray as we sit? A moment of quiet then, perhaps as we acknowledge our own hypocrisy and then ask that through the blood of Jesus, the power of the Spirit, our hearts might be moved and transformed. So, Father, we thank you today for the liberating news of saving grace that through the shed blood of Christ and the love of you, our Father, we can be motivated and moved 
to live a life of grace. Help us to so serve you in secrets that we might be those who do gain a reward, the reward of grace. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.